Thanks for joining us at our Foothills Church podcast. We exist to help people find and follow Jesus. If you're new here, we'd love to connect with you at foothills.cc. We hope you enjoy this message. In a book that was called, Can a Man Live Without God? There was a story about a British journalist by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge. And he was on assignment in India. And um, what he would do in the evenings is he would go to the local river and take a swim. One particular evening as he was going to take his swim, he noticed on the bank across the river, there was a, um, an Indian woman who was down there to take a bath. And he had struggled with this type of temptation many times in his past, but he'd always overcome them because of his thought of his, his wife, Kitty, and so he had always restrained from uh, pursuing that. But on this particular evening, it just felt different. He was overcome with that temptation, seeing that woman, and he dove into the water and began to swim ferociously toward that woman as if he was almost trying to outswim his conscience. As he got within about two or three feet of the other bank, he emerged out of the water, and here's what he said that he saw. He looked at her and he said, she was old and hideous. Her feet were deformed and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left him kind of shaken. And he muttered under his breath, what a dirty, lecherous woman. Then the shock of that situation dawned on him. It wasn't the woman who was lecherous. It was his own heart. It was his own heart. We're wrapping up the series on the Ten Commandments, kind of the forgotten commandments or at least the misunderstood commandments. The first nine commandments have everything to do with kind of uh, external things. The commandment number 10 has something to do with the internal. The first nine commandments are kind of about action. But the 10 commandment is about the heart. And the danger is what begins in the heart, if it's, not, if it's not put in check, will often come out as an action. And today we're going to talk about commandment number 10 on God's top 10 list of commandments. It almost, you think, and when you read this, it almost is like, does this one even fit? But as you're going to understand, if, if maybe you, you don't now, you hopefully by the end of the message, you'll understand just how devastating this particular sin is. And it's, and it's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And here's what it is. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And I don't think there could be a more appropriate commandment that, I, that I'm going to be doing the message on uh, this particular week because I've been gone um, for a couple weeks down in South Florida, which is kind of the playground of the rich and famous. It's, it's, it's wealth and opulence is, is uh, on another level. And when we go down there, one of the things we like to do, we love to fish, and we'll often fish off the beach. And we go to this place, this beach called Hope Sound, but in, in order to get to Hope Town, you go to this little, kind of this village, this, this community, this very small community known as Jupiter Island, and it's one of the wealthiest zip codes in the United States of America. 
And um, just to give you an idea of the wealth that the average home there sells for $8 million, you can, you can get like a fixer-upper bungalow for like $5 million, you know, a little shack. In September, they sold nine houses in that, in that village, and the average price was around $16 million. So you can kind of get the feel. So we would go down there and fish, and as we drive through there and, and, or walk down the beach, you're passing like oceanfront mansion after oceanfront mansion after oceanfront mansion. It's just a super wealthy place. Rumor has it that Burt Reynolds, in the height of his wealth, couldn't even buy a home in Jupiter Island because he didn't have generational wealth. He didn't have enough to get in. They basically wouldn't sell him a house. He was blackballed. That's how wealthy this place is. So as you're driving down or walking down the beach, you just kind of get caught up in it. At least I do. I get caught up in that. And I think to myself, man, what would it be like to have that kind of wealth? Wouldn't it be amazing if I had that house? Wouldn't it be incredible to have drive that kind of car? Like, just what could I, just think of the Lord, how much of the Lord's work I could do with all that money. Like, how many good things I could, that's not what I think. I'm thinking, what could I do for myself if I had that much money? Like, I'd be so rich, my butler would have a butler. You know what I'm saying? It would be like incredible. And then I kind of snap out of it and go, wait, what am I thinking? I know that doesn't bring happiness. I know that doesn't bring peace. I know that doesn't bring fulfillment. It's kind of like I have to kind of shake out of that whatever I've been in, that's, that's, what covet, that's what covetedness is. And it's dangerous and it's a problem because we all are kind of, if we're not careful, we, we fall into that. So I wanna give you a working definition of covetedness just so we're all on the same page. And, and here's, what, here's what it is. It's a strong desire to have that which belongs to another. It's marked by an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions. It could be a lot of things. It's very similar to greed in a lot of ways. In fact, depending on the, the translation of the Bible you use, it, it almost uses those words interchangeable. I believe there's a little bit of a difference, which I'll get to later. But here's what we do know about, about this sin, this greed, this covetedness, is that it's, uh, it's talked a lot about in the Bible. And there are warnings all over the Bible about not falling into this particular sin because there's a slippery slope when we do. And in the Bible, I think when we, every time we see it, it says, do not do this. Be careful you don't do this because it is so dangerous. And yet this particular commandment, remember, God has a top 10 list. He could put anything in that list, and he, and he includes this thing called covetedness because of the danger that it presents all of us. And uh, I, I think sometimes we have a tendency, because this is probably one of the most common that we break, I mean, for a lot of us, you know, some of them, when we've been able to check off the list and go, well, I don't do that one, I don't do that one, but we come to this one, we all, we're all like, yeah, we, we do that one. And it's almost like we don't take it serious, but the Bible takes it very seriously, and not only in Exodus in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And I want to read something that the Apostle Paul writes in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. He says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Like, he's, he's saying, like, this is a really, really bad stuff, and, and, and you make sure this doesn't happen. Sexual immorality would all go, yeah, that's really, really bad. Impurity, yeah, that's really, really bad. Greed, you know, that one's not quite so bad, but he includes that, right, because it is so bad. He said, let there be none of that among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. I've seen stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God, you can be sure, now he doubles down on it, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person 
will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, if you don't deal with this sin, there are consequences. For a greedy person, listen to this, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. He says that covetedness, greed, is, an, is idolatry. Pastor Blaine did an amazing job last week in that message about idolatry. And he talked about it. He said, it's when we, when we worship things other than God and we put things on a pedestal, and that's what we do when we covet. We look at something and go, man, that is my, that's like, like my whole self wants to be in that situation. I want, this is what will bring me joy and happiness, and that's where we get it wrong. And as I say, the danger is that it, what starts innocently when we see something and go, well, that's, that's nice. I mean, that's a beautiful mansion on the ocean. There's nothing wrong with that. It's what happens when we allow our heart to continue down that vein because there's this domino effect, this snowball effect, this, this slippery slope. And I want to talk to you about that slippery slope today. I want to give you, tell you about a story uh, in just a second found in, in uh, Joshua chapter 7. And I want to set it up so you can kind of see how this works. Um, in Joshua chapter, if you back up in the book of Joshua, you see that the nation of Israel who had been held captive in Egypt, um, eventually gets out and Moses leads them and they get to the bank of the promised land. Moses dies. All the people who sinned against God has died. And then the remaining ones are going over into the promised land. Joshua is their leader now. They get over there and, um, and their first battle is the battle of Jericho, which is, was an amazing military victory that was very unorthodox in the way that God did it. He had the people march around the, the walls of the city. The walls came crashing down. And here's what God said after that victory. He told them, the plunders of the battle are mine. Don't take for yourself any of the gold, the silver, any of the valuable things. That's, that's mine. And I want you to take those things, and I want you to, instead of taking them for yourself, I want you to put them in the Lord's treasury because these are designated for me, these valuable things. And everybody was good with that, except there was a guy whose name was Achan who decided to, to kind of take some of that for himself, unbeknownst to everybody else. Well, right after that, the nation of Israel is going to go try to conquer the next place, and that's called this place called Ai. And they, they go over there, and they send some spies over to look at the land, and the spies come back and tell Joshua, no problem. This is light work. We don't need a big military presence there. Send me, give me 3,000 soldiers and we'll, we'll just kind of annihilate them. They take the 3,000 guys over, the gear, over there, but unfortunately, things don't go well. They come running back. They've had some casualties. They lose the battle, and Joshua is like frustrated. He's like, what's up, God? I mean, we had this great victory against Jericho, and then we go to this little podunk town, and we can't even take that. This is going to be an embarrassment to us and to you. What's going on? And, and God said, hey, remember when I said that everything from Jericho was supposed to go into the treasury of the Lord? That didn't happen. There's somebody that decided he was going to, he, because of his covetedness, he wanted that, and he, and he, and he, was going to, he was going to do exactly what I told him not to do. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call him out, and I'm going to do it in a way that's going to show the nation that how seriously I take the sin of covetedness. And so he says, I'm going to do it through the process of elimination. 
And in, and in Joshua chapter 7, here's what plays out, beginning in verse 16. Early the next morning, Joshua brought the tribes of Israel before the Lord, and the tribe of Judah was singled out. Now, here he goes through this process of elimination. There's 12 tribes of Judah. They single it down to this tribe uh, of Judah. Then the clans of Judah came forward, and the clan of Zerah was singled out. Then the families of Zerah came forward, and the family of Zimri was singled out. Every member of Zimri's family was brought forward, person by person, and Achan was singled out. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. They're hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried deeper than the rest. So Joshua sent some men to make a search. They ran to the tent, found the stolen goods hidden there, just as Achan had said, with the silver buried beneath the rest. They took the things from the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites. They laid them on the ground in the presence of the Lord. And Joshua and all the Israelites took Achan, the silver, the robe, the bar of gold, his sons, daughters, cattle, donkey, sheep, sheep, goats, tent, and everything he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Joshua said to Achan, why have you brought trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. And all the Israelites stoned Achan and his family and burned their bodies. It's pretty drastic, right? Whoa. God, God don't play when it comes to covetedness, right? I mean, God was like, wait, wait a second. We're not going to have this. We're in a clean house right here. There's a slippery slope. And I want to show it to you today, and I'm going to, we're going to look at this story. We're going to look at some other stories of the Bible, and you can see that it's, it's a common thing that a lot of us have been caught up in ourselves, and we don't even realize it. And yet, it, it, can, it can cause a lot of harm and damage to not only us, but the people around us. So here's the slippery slope. Let me just lay it out for you, and then we'll go back to it. He saw. He wanted. He took. And he hid. He saw. He wanted. He took. He hid. I saw, I wanted, I took, I hid. There's this, what seems innocent in the beginning we see, but then it moves into wanting the desires of the heart, and eventually we take, and then because of our sin, we try to hide things. The slippery slope, the least trouble. Don't, don't miss, miss this, that covetedness is a sin. Exodus 20, verse 17, again, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Covetness is a big deal. And yet, sometimes we don't look at it that way. In Joshua, again, chapter 7, I want to, I want to walk back through the story of, of, of how his explanation. Hagin replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, watch this, you're going to see this play out. Among the plunder, I saw... A beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins and a bar of gold weighed more than a pound. Okay, so he saw. Can't help what you see sometimes, right? Like we see things all the time. 
that's usually not what, where the pro- problem is. It's what happens after that when we engage the heart. He said, I saw that stuff. And then he said this, I wanted them so much. Once his heart engaged, then the action starts moving, right? It goes from the, the, uh, the internal to the external. I wanted them so much that I took them. He saw, he wanted, he took. They are hidden. The next process is, is that we try to hide when we do this. They're hidden, uh, they're hidden in the ground beneath my tent with a silver buried deeper than the rest, and it goes on to talk about that. So here's the thing. He saw, he wanted, he took, and he hid. We all know that this is the way it works. We all could point to people in their lives that have done this. We've done this, probably some things, maybe not to this extent, but we do this. The thing that we have to understand is that when we look at the the outcome for Achan in this story is that it didn't just affect him, as Pastor Blaine talked about last week as well, is that we don't sin in a vacuum. Our sin has a ripple effect of those people around us. All his family are put to death. Whether they conspired with him or not, we don't know. Probably not. I don't. I bet they didn't even know because he buried it underneath everything. He hid it. But whether they knew or not, they were affected. They were all stoned to death. It's, it is a big deal, right? And the Bible says in uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 15 that greed, greed brings grief to the whole family. This is a serious thing. Now, I want to show you something about this slippery slope, and this is where I think we can learn a lot. Um, Satan has, you know, ultimately he wants to uh, cause destruction in our life. He wants to cause chaos in our life. That's, that's, you know, he's all about, you know, harming us in any way he possibly can. And he has a bag of tricks that he uses that are, that are, that have stood the test of time. He doesn't have many tricks, but they're effective. And I think he thinks, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Because we all keep falling for the same stuff over and over again. The Bible calls, calls this, this, this bag of tricks the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All, of, all the sins we have could be kind of put into those three categories. When Jesus was about to enter his earthly ministry, you might recall the story. He has been out in the wilderness on a, uh, on a fast, where he's praying and fasting for 40 days. At the end of that, he's hungry, because in his humanness, he's, he's God, but he's also human, and he's hungry. And so Satan comes and realizes that, hey, he's in a state where I could maybe catch him off guard a little bit, and Satan comes with his temptations. And if you go back and read that, you'll find that those temptations are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that he offered up Jesus. Of course, Jesus, being fully God, fully man, felt the temptation, but did not sin, thank God, right? Because he made a way for us because of that, but he didn't fall into that. But those same temptations are the things that catch us all the time, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In these stories, a slippery slope, this isn't the only place this is found. It didn't start, by the way, in the wilderness with Jesus being tempted. That's not where this came about. If you want to find out the origins of this plan, you have to go all the way back to the the book of Genesis, the beginning of time, and you remember the story of Adam and Eve. They were in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect in those times. Sin had not begun yet. Everything was perfect, and God told Adam and Eve, you can have anything you want. This This is perfection. There is one exception. There is a tree in the middle of the garden 
It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat the fruit of that tree because if you eat the fruit of that tree, you're going to die. And Satan comes in, seeing an opportunity, says, did God really say that? You're not going to die if you eat that fruit. It's going to make you more like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat that fruit. And here's what it says, and I want you to look. The same slippery slope, Adam and Eve, Genesis, here it is. The woman was convinced she saw, right? She saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious. And she wanted, she saw and she wanted. Now her heart's engaged, the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. That moment their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. She saw, she wanted, she took, and then they hid. It's the same pattern. We see it all the time. It wrecks people's lives all the time. This is not new. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Great king of Israel. He saw, he wanted, he took, and he hid. Here's what it says. Second Samuel, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed, he saw a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. He wanted. He was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent his messenger to get her. He took. When she came to his palace, he slept with her. If you know the rest of the story, she got pregnant, and then David was in a jam, and so he tried to hide. He wanted to cover it up. Had her husband killed, but God busted him because it always comes out. Saw, he wanted, he took, he hid. This is, this is, this is what happened, and we've got to be careful because I think we all know people who have done this in their marriages. Right? You know, kind of an innocent conversation takes place with a co-worker of the opposite sex. The next thing you know, there's this, like, the, the heart starts engaging an emotional attachment. It's moving then that slippery slope in a downward direction. We saw, then the desires of the heart, we want, and then they take. And then they got to try to cover it up. And you could go through all kinds of areas of our lives where we do the same thing. Guys, this is, this is not, this is something, we ought to be, we ought to be smarter than this. Like we know, what's, but here's what we think. Well, we'll be the exception. Like I'll, I'll look, but I won't touch. I know, I, I, you know, I'm strong. I can take this. And we try to get so close to the fire without getting burnt, but it, it always comes back to bite us at the end. I love I to hunt. I love to fish, but I also love to trap. And I like to trap wild hogs. I know this sounds super redneck right now, but just go with me here, okay? I like, to, I like to trap wild hogs because they are amazing to eat, okay? So, and they're invasive, invasive species. But anyways, here's what I've learned over the years trapping wild hogs. They say pigs are some of the smartest animals, and, and, and I would agree. And so I'll, I have a huge trap, and um, I bait it with corn, but I don't set it, not at first, because they got to get used to coming in and out. And the little ones, because I have cell cameras and I watch what's going on, little ones, they like, they have no fear. Like, they'll go in there and eat that corn. Like, doesn't bother them. The bigger ones hang back. They're like, nah, this doesn't look right. 
something's fishy with this. But after a while, their stomach gets the best of them. They can't, they, they, I mean, they saw, they want, they're going to take, right? So they're going to, eventually they start coming in and out. At first, they only go to the edge, and then they eventually go in. And, and after a couple of nights, they come in and out, and they go, hey, nothing happened. That's when I, that's when I, put, that's when I set the trap, because they're coming in and out without any thinking about it. I set it. Usually that next night, I got them. Every now and then, the really big ones will never come in the trap. Like, they're super cautious, and they'll lay back. And when that trap triggers and that door falls and the rest of them are caught, if there happens to be one or two on the outside, they get what's known as trap shy from that point on. Like, they will never, you'll never catch that pig, ever. Like, they know now, I saw that, and I'm not going to be a casualty like my buddies are. Like, I'm not going to do what they did. I saw that. I already was suspicious, and I was, and I'm thinking as I was doing this message, I thought, you know what? Sometimes pigs are smarter than us. Like, we, how many of us have known people who have destroyed their marriages because they went on this slippery slope? Anybody know anybody that's done that? Just, just a couple of us? I think we all would raise our hands. We, we all know people. We all know people who have destroyed their finances by doing the same. I saw it. I wanted. I took. I hit. We all know people that destroyed their lives doing this stuff, and yet we just got to go like, like, it won't happen to me. So what do we do? How do we overcome this thing? Because there's a strong allurement, and the problem, I guess, for most of us is that we've never really We've never really put into practice the scripture that says that we're to take our thoughts captive. And when that thought comes, because we can't help what we see, but then there's that, you know, that, that turning point, that fork in the road where it's like, okay, I'm, I, I see it and it is desirable, but am I going to allow my heart to continue to engage in that or am I going to just like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Because there is a slippery slope. And I'm not the exception, and I'm not stronger than anybody else. That I could be the casualty. And I don't want that to happen to me. And I don't, want, I don't want that to happen to my family. And I don't want that to happen to anybody I know. So, so what do we do? Well, I'm going to give you the how do we counteract covetedness, okay? And this is going to make it real simple. First thing you do, if you want to counteract covetedness in your life, count your blessings. Count your blessings. There's an old... I don't know if it's a hymn, an old song says, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. If we could learn to do that, but the, the problem for a lot of us is that we, we really fall into that greener grass myth where we look at what somebody else has and said, man, that's what I really want. I mean, the greener grass myth is the, green, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And if, you, and if you're a person who has, if you know that person maybe lives next door to you that has the perfect lawn, you know what I'm talking about? Like the perfect lawn, it's green, it's, it's lush, it's, it's, just, it's just perfect. And your lawn is like, eh. And you look at it and go, man, I really want, I, I, I should have that. Like that should be me. And the fact is it could be me. But if I'm gonna look at my life and I realize the reason my neighbor has the, green lawn is because he takes care of his lawn. He mows his lawn. He fertilizes his lawn. He pulls weeds. He does all of the stuff that while I'm out trapping hogs, he's doing that, right? So, so my, I'm not, my lawn doesn't look like that. 
And I'm, and I'm, and here's the thing. The fact, I know this, and you know this, that I could have the same lawn if I put into work. Right? Like, I could, I could have the same lawn or the same whatever if I want it to put into work. But what I need to do is just count my blessings because I've got so much. Comparison is a killer. It is. It's a, comp- it's a killer. Because when I start comparing, I no longer am content. I'm no longer appreciative of, of the blessings that I have because I look at somebody with more. And by the way, when we compare, why do we always compare with someone more than us? Have you ever compared with somebody that has less than you? We don't do it that way, do we? We always compare with the the person who has more. But here, if you want to compare, compare yourself with someone who has less. You'll start realizing how blessed you are. Do you know that over 1.2 billion people, that's a B billion people in the world, live on less than a dollar a day? Did you know that? Do you know that 95% of the people in this world, in the world, 95% of the people in the world would change places with you tomorrow if they could? But we look around and we go, well, I don't have that, I don't have that, I don't have that, I don't have that. We, we don't realize how much we really have because we're not counting our blessings. Psalm 103 says this. Bless the Lord or praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. That's a deep within me, right? And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget the benefits of following God who forgives all your iniquity. Thank God for Jesus and his work on the cross because because of that, if I place my faith in him, my sins, your sins are forgiven. He forgives all our iniquity. He heals all of our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. How many of you were in the pit before Jesus found you? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with, uh, with good so that your youth is renewed like the, eve, like the eagles. I mean, look at what God's blessed you with. So if you're gonna counteract covetous, count your blessings. Number two, learn to find contentment in Christ. Find contentment in Christ. At the root of covetousness is this idea that God hasn't given me enough. Like I, ha- I need more. Because the strange things happen to us when we get in that situation. When I'm, when I'm in Jupiter Island driving past those oceanfront estates, the, the, the thing that happens to me is the more I start desiring that, the less appreciative I am of what God has blessed me with. And then all of a sudden, I'm no longer content with what I've got because uh, I want what somebody else has. And this is the danger that, um, that we, we can end up in if we're not careful. Let me give you what I, earlier I said. I think there's a difference between covetedness and greed, and I want to give you what I came up with, and this is what I think. They're similar in a lot of ways, but there's this distinction. One distinction seems to be that greed is this. I want what I don't have, right? That's greed. I want what I don't have. But I believe covetousness really is a little different because I think covenant says, I want what you have, and if given the opportunity, I will take it from you. 
I want what you have. And if I get a chance, I'd take it from you. James says this in James chapter 4, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. James says, hey, look, you got it all wrong. You're trying to get what somebody else have, and you'll do whatever you, you have to do to get it. And the reason you don't have it is because you're not asking God. And, and when you're asking God, you're not even asking the right way because all you're doing is saying, God, give me what I want instead of saying, God, I want what you want. It's, it's, it's this whole attitude of selfishness, and that's dangerous. He goes on to say, remember it says, don't covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's servants, ox, donkeys. But I think you could continue that list. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, husband, servant, ox, donkey, iPhone, new car, bank account, physique, on and on and on. You could go. It's just like, this is what we do. And this is the danger. At the end of the day, what really matters is Jesus. I mean, that sounds like such an easy solution, right? You know, just Jesus is the answer. Yes, he is. There's a story found in John chapter 4. Jesus is at a well in, in Samaria, and there's a Samaritan woman that comes to the well, and he has this conversation with the woman. And, and um, Jesus says, he's talking to her about the, the water she's drawing from the well. And then during the conversation, Jesus says, go get your husband. And the woman says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you know, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And she realizes, whoa, this guy, how do you know all this? She realizes he's truly the Messiah. And what you really, as you dig into the story, you could kind of read behind the line, between the lines, and you see that this lady really was trying to find her fulfillment or happiness or peace in relationships with the opposite sex. And Jesus says, no, that's not going to do it. Nothing else is going to satisfy. Here's what Jesus says to her. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes fresh, a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. It's the relationship with Jesus that brings fulfillment. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. This is where you're going to find contentment in Jesus. You know, as we've walked through the Ten Commandments, here's the deal. Um, you, you look at the Ten Commandments, and here's what we discover, that none of us has the ability to keep the commandments. You might say, well, I've never murdered anybody. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus says, if you've said to somebody, you fool, you've pretty much committed a murder anyways. Like Jesus talks about the heart. Because a lot of times all we do is, well, I don't do this, this, and this. And Jesus says, no, it's really about your heart. It's really about your heart. And the New Testament tells us that the purpose of the law is to really show us how much we need Jesus. That's, that's what the, the purpose of the law, the Old Testament law, is to show us we can't live it. 
Like, it's impossible. There's nobody that can do this. If one doesn't get us, the other one will. And the Bible says if we've, if, if we've you know, broken one part of the law, we've broken the entire law. So the purpose of the law is to show us how far short we fall and show us our need for Jesus, who was the only perfect one, because none of us are perfect. So it's not that we look at it and go, well, the Ten Commandments are irrelevant today. No. They're relevant because they do show us our need. The Old Testament, I don't have time to get into it, but the Old Testament, what would happen is that these people didn't, before Jesus came to this earth, they had a series of sacrifices they would have to do to, to atone for their sin. And they would bring animals and have animals killed, and, you know, it would, it would do that. But Jesus came, and once and for all, he didn't just cover our sins. He removed our sins, the Bible says. And if you don't know Jesus, listen, it, it, you know, we look at things like covetedness and we go, well, that's not as, you know, a, that bad. Or we look at murder, well, that one's really bad. And, and, and you know what? Here's the deal. We all need Jesus. Doesn't matter what we've done. We've all fallen short of God's, per, per, you know, standard of perfection. And Jesus met that standard. And because of what he's done, he's given us the opportunity to have a relationship with God. And I'm so thankful for that because we couldn't do that on our own. Guys, here's the bottom line. We know where this stuff leads us, and God doesn't want us to destroy our life. God doesn't want us to wreck our family. God doesn't want us to wreck our marriage or our finances or whatever. He doesn't want us to do that. And so he's put these guardrails. He's put these, these, these commandments. He's put these, these, these things in Scripture to say, hey, there's a better way to do this. And what you're looking for and all the things you're chasing after and all the things you think are going to bring you fulfillment, they won't. Not lasting fulfillment, only your relationship with Jesus will do that. So let's pray together as we close out this series and let's ask God to move in our lives. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for showing us your truth. I know for a lot of us, we get it's so easy to get caught up. We, we look online or we see these influencers or we see these celebrities and we go, man, I would love that. We see what someone has that we don't have and we say, man, I want that. And all along, God, everything that we really, the deepest part of our heart, what we really need is you. And you're the only one who brings true satisfaction. When we drink of the water that you give, that we'll never be thirsty again. So God, thank you for your commandments. Thank you for showing us that we can't live that way. There's no way we can do that. We don't have the ability on our own, but thank God you knew it the way by sending Jesus, your own son, to make it possible for us to approach a holy God and have a relationship with you. So I'm praying for people in this room, people in Pendleton, people who watch online, people who may see this down the road in some video. I'm praying that they would recognize that they need you, that you made a way. And if that describes you, my friend, and you're willing to commit your life to Jesus, Maybe as an acknowledgement of that, maybe just offer a prayer like this. Jesus, today I am laying down my life and I'm taking up my cross and I'm following you and I'm asking you to, to come into my life and change me from the inside out and forgive my sins and make me a new person. I desire to follow you for the rest of my life. God, I pray for maybe people who are in that, on that slippery slope. They, something 
just kind of clicked with them today and they realized, man, I'm in a wrong, I'm in a bad place. And if I don't, if I don't bail right now and move back to God, that, that I'm gonna, I'm gonna land myself and my family in destruction. So God, whatever it takes, use your Holy Spirit, do what you need to do in our lives. Draw us to yourself. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.